Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hello and welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. Uh, this is Josh Abatoy, the executive director. I've also got with me Timon Klein, our editor-in-chief. Uh, we're excited to be back today and we've got a wonderful topic to discuss. Uh, we are going to discuss imperialism and empire and America. And we're also going to discuss um, how those concepts relate to Christian nationalism. Two recent, very interesting articles uh, have come out on this subject. One in American Reformers pages written by Dan Strand, an Augustine expert. Uh, and then the other is uh, by Aaron Wren in the pages of the American Mind. All of them, I think, are beckoning us to think about America as an empire rather than a nation. And this actually really gets relevant with respect to some of the discussions around Christian nationalism. Uh, is America, properly speaking, a nation uh, that is the uh, that would be the subject of a Christian nationalist project, or is it something different? Uh, so I think it's going to be a great discussion today. Timon, uh, thanks for joining. Uh, any preliminary thoughts before we just get into it? Uh, no, I mean, the, this is a, a topic I've been, I enjoy talking about even before these, these two articles that were thought provoking came out. And so these will, these will help guide us well, I think. And, um, is, is, you know, sort of a new, new stage in the discussion potentially, um, which is exciting. So eager to get into them. Excellent. Well, let's, let's just, before we even dig into the articles, let's define what an empire is. The, the classic textbook definition of an empire is a political unit that operates above um, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic uh, people groups. Uh, mm -hmm. If you remember the root word of ethnic, it's ethnos, the Greek word for nation. Um, so an empire is sort of definitionally a, a, some unit of government that serves over many different nations. Think about the Roman Empire in this respect, sort of the paradigmatic empire. Um, of course, they start as a republic uh, with the Roman people in Italy. Um, they um, slowly perhaps even start to take on aspects of empire as they conquer Italy uh, but then it's really they, they really become imperial after the Punic Wars and capturing Carthage, uh, the wars in which they uh, conquer Greece, uh, the Greek people, nations, um, well, city-states in Greece, who all speak uh, a different language than the Romans, have very different civic traditions, are in all respects a different nation, um, but fall under uh, Roman rule. And then, of course, you know, the, the nation of... Uh, of Israel, then you know all these various nations, the uh, the Franks and the Celts and the various tribes in Germania, the Iberians. All, Rome ultimately asserts itself politically over all of these different particular nations, and it does so in a way that's not entirely homogenizing. Right? It um, 
to varying degrees allows them to practice the religion they practiced before Rome conquered them. Uh, they allow them to varying degrees to maintain their own language and customs and traditions. Um, but there's sort of an imperial deal that happens. You fall under Rome, you've got to pay your taxes. Uh, you know, you better not revolt. Um, in exchange, Rome builds roads. Uh, they significantly increase trade and they protect you from barbarians. That's sort of the bargain. And, um, you know, and maybe the elites of your society learn Latin and have maybe opportunity to ascend into, uh, into the imperial orbits uh, where, where they can actually, you know, climb to the top. It's, it's, you know, formally open at least to the subjects of the various nations within it, uh, ascending the ranks and, and accruing imperial power. Um, so, so I think, that, but, but, you know, again, overall that it's, it's, uh, that, that's the basic shape of it. Um, and, and so, you know, we've got these two interesting entrees into talking about America as an empire and they take different approaches. Uh, Dan Strand's article is defending America as an empire using an Augustinian framework. Um, and he does so, uh, with an eye towards not America in the continental, you know, or the continental states or the 50 states, but he's looking at the scope of America's international activity and saying that our international activity is imperial in nature. Um, this is a, this is a critique that's become a lot more common on the new right. I mean, I think Pat Buchanan would talk about this quite a bit. A lot of new right figures will talk about this quite a bit. Um, we know we've got, as Dan points out, we've got over a hundred military bases across the world. We essentially take responsibility for maintaining the safety of the seas and maintaining the ability of, of uh, commerce and safe passage uh, with uh, shipping. And, and then, you know, sort of similarly, um, digitally, we do the same in terms of um, large material transactions uh, tend to happen with the dollar, although that's, that's getting eroded a little bit. Um, but, but they tend to happen with the dollar because um, the dollar is a, a stable and secure, uh, the SWIFT system is a secure way to uh, pass around vast sums of money in big international transactions. And then, um, I mean, even, even similarly with like our, uh, our sort of international law regime, a lot of uh, international commerce depends upon individual countries enforcing judgments uh, that are made by uh, adjudication agencies that can that can adjudicate international disputes. Um, if you're a company that opens, you know, that has a contract in Vietnam, um, you need to know that the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese government will hold any Vietnamese nationals to their side of the bargain. It's only as good as your ability to enforce it there. And America as an empire um, really puts its thumb on the scale uh, using a lot of soft power and other means to uh, to encourage uh, these countries who are part of the American sort of economic zone or the Pax Americana bargain to um, to enforce uh, agreements and international contracts and all the rest. And in exchange for that, they get reciprocity. They get the ability to interact with America's economic zone. Um, so, so in a lot of ways, um, I mean, even if even if America's political like direct, explicit political control 
over these nations is not as explicit as it was in the case of of Rome. Um, America does exercise this softer power very broadly across the globe. And I would even say they actually impose a sort of tax. Um, They impose the tax uh, by way of uh, America's ability to export inflation. So when you've got a global dollar supply that, you know, more than half the world has to use for any international transactions, what this means is when America prints money and runs huge deficits for domestic spending, that does create inflation because you're increasing the dollar supply. But the inflationary effects of that activity are dissipated across a global currency supply while the benefits are uh, localized to, to generally speaking, America. So that is, in, in economic effect, it's not a tribute, but, the, but in effect, with the economic benefits, it is sort of a tribute. It is, in theory, the thing that helps to, um, helps to cover the cost of our international activity, um, defray the costs of us serving as the world's police, so to speak. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think, I think I've, I've sort of teed it up, uh, in a general sense there, but, uh, Timon, what were your thoughts on Strand's article? Yeah. I, I mean, I loved the, uh, the piece it was, you know, Dan is, um, this, this is his territory. So, um, you know, it's good to, good to see him in our pages, uh, dealing with, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the themes, I think he's, he's actually working on a book on, on some of these topics now. Um, so just a, a joy to read, but it, it did, you know, it should get people or I hope it gets them thinking about, um, you know, America's mode of, of power as you were kind of laying out. I mean, it's much more in this way, you know, it's it might be less like Rome and more like a successor to the to the British Empire, which controlled most of the war, the war, uh, the world, sorry, mainly through commerce, not war. Right. There was certainly lots of colonization that looked a lot more like a Roman um, model, but the the real power um, because of their navy and their their advances in commerce that eventually overtook the Dutch. You know, in the 19th century, the British basically controlled the the entire landmass of the world um, through through their financial arrangements. And there's there's plenty of books on this. So in some ways, we're doing that, but we've kind of taken it to the next level, which is to also introduce, um, you know. A, a, I guess you could say what Dan, part of Dan's point is, is our occupation is a little more explicit than, than people want to realize or think about. And then there's also that, uh, you know, our aspect of cultural exportation might be, you know, jokingly people on the new right will talk about that being our, our greatest export is sort of, you know, woke culture and things at this point. Um, but that, that does demonstrate our reach and our, and our control. And, you know, this is just a, whether you like it or not, a fact that, that Americans have to grapple with, especially people sort of on the uh, nascent nationalist kind of side, is this is, this is the country, if you're going to talk about that you're inheriting, that has um, certainly an, an imperial quality that was intentionally developed through the 20th century um, when we really rose to power. And you have to decide what you're going to do with that. It's nice to think about isolationist theories um, but that may not be how things work. And if you sort of ripped yourselves out of everywhere you have control or or some kind of presence, you know, it could be disastrous, not only for us, but for 
brothers as well. And that doesn't have to be, you know, I don't, I don't think Dan's argument is to be neocon and sentimentalist about these things as if yeah. we're, we need to police the world because we need to do good and let freedom ring and give people democracy and gender studies, whether they like it or not. Um, but it's just sort of this reality. And I, I remember it recalled to me the, um, the book Colossus from Neil Ferguson from back yeah. uh, mid 2000s, I guess. Um, and basically his conclusion was, you know, America is an empire in the, mo- in the model Dan's talking about. The problem is it may, in comparison to other empires, it has um, sort of a, an identity crisis. It doesn't want to admit this. It's not proud of it. You know, Romans and, and Brits used to be proud of their, their imperial status and of leading the world. We feel we have guilt about it like so many other things. Um, and then at the same time, even if we were proud of it, we don't have the fortitude and the determination it takes to actually be an empire. And so Neil at that time, you know, pulls up many examples from the Middle East at the time. And I think those have all been borne out. Our exit of Afghanistan and Iraq were disastrous. And, uh, you know, we should have taken, if you're going to do it, uh, it was ill-advised to enter, you know, Iraq for, for sure the way we did. We can debate that. But once you do it, you basically need to take a sort of colonization approach of we are going to rule and govern this place. Um, We're in it kind of for the long haul. We're going to settle. And if you're not willing to do that with your occupation, you know, you you really shouldn't do it at all because you are an empire. This is just how things function. So I think Dan's uh, Dan's analysis was was very realist. It's not necessarily aspirational. And it's not sentimental. And that that was nice and refreshing to see someone write about empire, the American empire, without those two qualities. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think the, ma- the major takeaway that Dan wants us to take from his article is that um, grounded in Augustine, um, we must um, – it, it, it's insufficient to merely assert that it's bad for America to be an empire full stop. Like that's not an argument – there can be good empires or bad empires. Mm-hmm. They are not inherently more or less moral than other forms of of government. Um, and I think that um, you know, I, th- I think at, at this point we we might want to maybe park and consider then uh, the the different shapes that empires take under um, Protestant Christianity as opposed to Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, practice or you know other other religions perhaps and i Mm -hmm. I think in this respect the 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 analogy to to the british empire is really really interesting um you know the the um in britain following the reformation there was this very strong tradition of the nation being the locus of political action and then that ties into ecclesial action as well so so they want um you know, th- their model is a king um, with a divine right to rule. And, you know, that king is is in some senses, you know, over the church or, you know, uh, the, the church um, ought to be organized at the national level um, and, and kind of correspond to to the king's rule. Uh, so that so they very strongly critique what they viewed as the imperial ambitions of the Catholic Church at the time, the Holy Roman Empire, um, the, the kind of uh, the realm of the, you know, the Pope and his and his uh, and the political rulers who did obeisance to the Pope. Um, but that doesn't then make 
an imperial project sort of totally inconsistent with Protestantism. And I, I think one thing that's very interesting in that in that project is that, you know, the Protestant forms of empire actually do to a large degree depend on kind of the use of economic um, I mean, there's a military aspect, but oftentimes they, they really do depend on this mm -hmm. economic activity to really drive them. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and in, in some respects, they're going to be maybe even more tolerant uh, of local difference than, for example, the Roman Empire was. Uh, the, the Protestant empires did not go to individual nations, generally speaking, and kind of force all the local rulers to pinch the incense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, so some of this is just circumstantial contingencies of history. We, of course, um, you know, immediately think, of course, you have the, the um, East India Trading Company, you know, is, is famous as, as part of British colonization and the economic empire. It's, a, it's an economic enterprise, right? It's a, it's a comp trade company. Of course, they have a military aspect and they kind of, uh, you know, rule almost as a, um, a de facto government in many places. Um, and they are backed by the, the, the crown and it is a, um, but it's largely an economic enterprise, right? They go to, to places like India with, which obviously have very established civilizations and, um, you know, have to deal with that. But the, you know, the sort of hallmark of, of British empire that we as Americans naturally think of is the colonization of the territory we're now, we're now on, right. Of, of the American continent and South America as well, the, the Indies, all these places, um, which presented a very different scenario, even as some of these um, companies, you know, that's always, they're always formed as companies, the, the, Pro the Providence Company, the Virginia Company, New England uh, Company, these sorts of things. And um, they go and they are supposed to establish uh, governments, you know, functionally, but also have, um, you know, largely economic interests. And there's a very interesting book from several years ago called New World Inc. that's sort of about the early, early 17th century merchant uh, projects that were up and down the eastern seaboard. It's fascinating. Um, in any case, it, it was, and th this will tie into Aaron Wren's article we'll bring up in, in a little bit, it was a different scenario because it was this kind of expansion into largely unsettled land where you're not confronting strong, um, disagreeable, established civilizations that then you have to determine whether you govern them in sort of the Roman model or not, right? Mm -hmm. How much of their customs do you allow? How much of, um, you know, do they, do they um, need to, do you have a problem where they won't tolerate your missionaries or your preaching? You just kind of have land, you know, even whether it's through conquest or through largely in New England was through purchasing it from indigenous tribes. Um, you just have land with no real, no real competition other than French colonization of Canada and the, the Spaniards in the South. And so it, it gives you this sort of blank slate in many ways to not only pursue new economic, uh, you know, activities and, and new, gather new resources, but it also allows you to kind of just build from scratch, which which creates um, lots of local autonomy. Uh, this is, would be built into a lot of those charters, lots of, of freedom of, of movement. And, you know, it, and in the end, you do even by the 18th century start to see there's obvious similarities, but even a distinction in culture of Americans because of the, the colonization process. Whereas if you had had the Roman scenario and, you know, you're going to Judea or whatever, um, part of the model is you have to allow those ancient local ways of doing things to remain. Otherwise, the whole thing would fall apart. You'd, you'd either have to kill everybody or, you, or let them go. 
Um, and we just didn't, the, the British Empire didn't encounter that as much. And I mm-hmm. think it's interesting because it's part of America's genesis. And again, we'll get to, you know, how Ren kind of is kind of thinking of America itself. But, um, you know, I, it's something to, to, uh, to consider in that regard to distinguish between the preeminent Protestant empire of the 17th and 18th century, England, and its differences are both through, yes, through economic uh, interest and focus in many ways, especially when you're dealing with established countries. So it's a little softer um, in its in its handling, but also had this unique opportunity to just spread itself through basically uninhabited land with with little uh, resistance. And that that's a singular you know op- opportunity that that few other uh, empires have ever had. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's all good stuff. I I've, I think we've got one more thing we need to talk about before we shift over from Strand's article to Aaron's, and it's this question of whether um, Strand's defensive empire uh, clashes to some extent with uh, with the theoretical Christian nationalism of, for example, Stephen Wolf. Um, mm-hmm. If we Stephen Wolf's one of the arguments he makes is that it's a nation. A nation is sort of a coherent um, thing, right? That it that that exists, mm-hmm. and its rulers, the leading people of that nation, ought to seek the good of their nation. It, it's you know, sort of the ordo amoris, the order of love, um, requires them to act politically uh, first for the interest and preservation of their own nation. Okay, um, the, the, I think that you know one potential. Uh, engagement with Strand's argument is that essentially when a nation uh, nation state starts to undertake imperial activities, uh, there starts to be sort of a balancing of interests or conflict of interests between the interests of the empire and the individuals who are in a, in a position to benefit from the empire and then the interests of the nation per se. So, so what do you, what do you make of that? Do you think that, you know, this defensive empire is reconcilable with a very pure sort of Christian nationalist, Althusian sort of analysis? Yeah, in, in my mind, it is reconcilable in the same way um, that, that it's reconcilable to, you know, so one thing that's been raised, and I think it's an improper objection, but it's, it's natural, is, you know, how does this work with America's uh, general polity, how, our, our government structure? as a federalist, you know, country. And I, I think you can perfectly accommodate it to that. Uh, you just, you just adjust for the way we, we kind of run things. And I think in, in a similar way, you can say the same thing about our imperial na- nature internationally. Um, the, the requirement though, I would say, if you're, if you're wanting to be a Christian nationalist and this, this is where, you know, this is, this is where the real action's at. This is what's difficult for, nations with imperial power to to balance and you see this in all of them which is what you already raised the the interest of the core sort of nation itself um, versus your your expansive interests and which ones you know one needs to always be in service of the other and if you lose that balance or your interpretation of national interest becomes sort of locked into or dictated by uh, your expansionist projects that that becomes a problem um and so, and I would say even, you know, every empire basically has this, there, there may be, so even under a more integration sort of model, assimilation model, to some extent, 
that the that the Romans had, as opposed to maybe that what we're saying about the British or uh, how we're defining their their real exercise of power, um, where you're where you're incorporating all these nations into essentially unified landmass, even if you're allowing local governance to to continue apace. The the Romans still obviously maintained a core national identity, even if if more and more people were able to assimilate into it. There was Roman citizens, and then there was there was a Roman, right? Culturally Roman, uh, heritage Romans, we might say. Um, and that you know, over time, those wa- the waters get muddied. But it does, uh, you know, there was no question of the glory of Rome itself, you know, in the Eternal City, whatever you want to say, is is at least ostensibly the goal of everything else. Um, and so the, it's going to dictate how you handle your governance of your outposts and things. Um, again, that inevitably will fall apart. All human regimes are finite. Um, but I, the point is, I think you can maintain a nationalist identity and approach to your, your ethne, as we were saying, the American ethne, um, even as you have these sort of international projects going on. Um, the really dumb thing America likes, has liked to do over the past, especially 30 or 40 years, is pretend that um, across the world, you you don't need to assimilate them, you know, into the the national polity or our uh, you know our continent. You can sort of just export McDonald's to to them, and they can become you know not only citizens in this imperial sense of America, where they get protections and things, but all of a sudden they're just culturally American, and that's been proven pretty foolhardy, mainly because people have other cultures that are much more stubborn and self-assertive than ours. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you've got to say with respect to the Roman Empire, though, that um, uh, four years of being a functional empire did uh, sort of hollow out the Roman national identity. And mm-hmm. I think part of the way you can see this is that when um, when when Rome falls, when it's sacked, when the empire starts to disintegrate. There's not some nation state in Italy that like sort of steps back in and, you know, kind of continues Mm -hmm. things apace. Mm -hmm. The fall is cataclysmic and, Mm -hmm. you know, Italy itself has been, you know, very much uh, sort of hollowed out of any kind of uh, coherent identity. Um, And it's really the the church, you know, the Roman church is the thing that that, uh, provides that, of course, but now it's, you know, the Roman church isn't just Rome, it's sort of Mm -hmm. all of Western Europe. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's a challenge. Um, you know, I, I, I would probably take the view that, that an empire is sort of necessarily in its structure going to be dilutive of national identity. I think um, that's fair. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, it, now, now in the case of the British empire, um, you know, for, for various, well, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe you could even make an argument in the case of the British empire that, that, um, its own empire was dilutive to its national identity. Um, you know, you can see yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a different sort of argument, but, you know, the, um, you know, following, uh, decolonization, uh, Britain for sort of partly moral reasons, you know, uh, basically felt this ethical obligation to accept, mass migration, um, mm-hmm. especially from its former colonies. And, uh, you know, so that that's a, it's a different process than what happened in Rome. Um, but, you know, I think we might even say in the case of Britain, 
that uh, that destruction of its national identity was a natural consequence of its imperial activity. Right. It's just it's just a slower, slower process because of the nature of its empire as compared to Rome. Yeah. Yeah. And if one final thing to note, I think, and this is just a descriptive point, but any nation that's going to assert itself as an empire just must have uh, civilizational confidence. It, it, you know, it's not just that it's the most powerful, but it has to believe that it's right. It's better in some sense than other nations and that it has, and and because it's better in, in meaningful ways, it's, it's morally legitimate for it to, take on the role of the hegemon. And mm-hmm. certainly we can look at the British Empire and say, yes, of course, this is this is what they thought about themselves. And in many respects, it was true. I mean, during, for the most part, um, Britain was the, was the nation that you'd want to have acted as the hegemon. They weren't perfect, but, you know, there have been few empires that were more humane and, and uh, you know, oriented towards actual human flourishing. Uh, in a lot of ways than the British Empire and mm-hmm. you know the their work in in parts of the third world uh, building infrastructure and and institutions of civic society in many cases they created foundations that um, that are blessing people to this day and this is where the moral realist argument really takes on its force it you know mm-hmm. the American Empire uh, you know I think it's I, frankly I think it's a little bit more of a mixed bag than the British one particularly yeah. since um, our chief exports now are, you know, indoctrinating nations into the progress religion and, uh, you know, uh, teaching, uh, teaching people across the world how to, uh, you know, how to accept uh, the LGBTQ plus uh, community and that sort of thing. That's, that's what we stand for to a large degree, which is, which is really unfortunate. And, but, you know, um, but I think the overall point is, uh, if you know the Brits were the the hegemon, uh, the Americans have been and still are in many ways the hegemon. Um, you know, there 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 usually will be, uh, you know, one or two hegemons globally, um, and if it's not us, it'll be somebody else. And I, I think this is where you know um, we're starting to see sort of the nascent Chinese uh, hegemonic activity. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the world is going to find that, <clears throat> you know, that they're, they're, they look a lot more like, uh, like some more traditional empires in the sense that they're going to, you know, rule with a little bit of a firmer hand uh, than we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just thinking the, um, right, the, the, I, I would agree that our, our quality of empire is, is a second rate compared to, you know, the way the British did it. It certainly hasn't. Um, proven itself to be as, as stable and probably its longevity is going to be as questionable. Um, but, it, and one of the distinctions would be, you know, so even, even though England ruled, you know, largely through these economic arrangements, it's how they controlled world, world finance and, and many other, many land masses, even without having to really set foot there in a, in a, re, in a real way. But you did also have, you know, through the colonization process, um, you know, in, somewhere like India, where, you know, to be the viceroy of India was like an, a political achievement. It's something people worked their whole lives to try to do. Mm-hmm. And you would go over there and you, you, you know, rule it on behalf of the, the empire in conjunction with the, with the local officials and all these things. And so it was something that was considered high status, 
And that requires, um, you know, a significant degree of confidence, as you said, uh, to be able to do. And I just don't, I'm not sure America has had that kind of confidence. I mean, who, who thinks that way about, in fact, we, we continually apologize for any kind of influence we have anywhere, much less you're not going to see politicians working their whole career to try to, you know, be part of this uh, imperial project. So, um, yeah, I just think the the Brits were just better in, in this way. Well, and they were more um, Christian. I mean, like, what's the basis true. for the civilizational confidence? You can have a good or bad foundation for civilizational confidence. And, right. um, you know, our civilizational confidence has been based on the universal self-evident correctness of democracy, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, was tested and failed miserably um, because it turns out not everybody's fit for self-governance. And then, uh, you know, more recently, our our basis for uh, this confidence again is is the our allegiance to this progress religion. Um, mm-hmm. But we find out that that um, you know, that can take in some locations. It you know probably takes most naturally in the post Christian nation, but it doesn't seem to have any sort of powerful effect on Islam. If anything, it radical mm-hmm. radicalizes Islam further. So mm-hmm. you know th- we've had um, just justifications for our moral legitimacy as a hegemon that when tested in the real world do not hold mm-hmm. up. Um, yeah. And we've even, uh, you know, we've, we've even Americanized, uh, you know, England at this point too. I mean, I was yep. struck by the, um, which is, which is fun, funny and uh, looking back on things, but I was even the interview that Tucker Carlson had with Nigel Farage the other day, you know, is considered a, a nationalist and sort of immigration hawk, right? Um, and there are many things he said that we, we'd, of course, totally agree with. But it was interesting that, you know, this could be polemical flair to be effective in the argument he really wants to make. I'm not sure. But he led off all of his comments about the need to, to restrict immigration now because this, of course, is in response to the massive pro-Hamas demonstrations throughout London, um, and many other problems they've they've had because of immigration. You know, Roger Scruton wrote years ago before he died about how it was found out that the local police forces were covering up the the trends of abductions, rape, and murder by Pakistani young men. So because it was going to create you know this obvious demographic question and immigration question. So just all the these sorts of things is what Nigel's wanting to get at. But he does lead off with sort of championing. Britain's willingness to take a bunch of immigrants over the past, you know, hundred years, as if this is just an unalloyed good, and as if one doesn't lead to the other, you know. So it was, it was very interesting way, and it's a total modern American way to think about it that he's received. That is not one that the, you know, at the height of the British Empire, you would have, you would have reasoned that way. Um, yeah, I, I was I, the well. We we can move on to to Ren's article. Um, if, if we want to at this point, because I think it's a natural, somewhat yeah. of a natural segue. Um, much, much more we, we could say here, but yeah, course. let's get Ren's article on the table. So, um, what time and why don't you, why don't you give Cliff notes on Ren's argument? Yeah. So, so Aaron wrote, Aaron Ren is, as most people know, a co-founder of American Reformer and our senior fellow. He, he was part of this ongoing symposium at the American Mind um, that is based off of Mike Sabo, who's the assistant editor there, he, he wrote an ex, sort of a big, long explainer and assessment of Christian nationalism a few weeks ago. And it's sort of developed into this ad hoc symposium with people commenting. Stephen Wolf's commented. Um, Aaron is writing in the same series. Other people are, I think, coming in. So Aaron's argument 
Uh, his, his article's titled Nationalism is an American. And he's taking, you know, his definition of nationalism, um, you know, is, is definitely, he calls it a sort of European 19th century phenomenon, which is not untrue. Um, you know, it is Reformation week. So we can think of, you know, the Germany of Luther is not the Germany of Bismarck, right? The Germany of Luther's day is, is hundreds and hundreds of little principalities and city states and these sorts of things all working and the, uh, together under the Holy Roman Empire's banner, but there is no like united Germany. The use of Luther for nationalist German purposes is a 19th and 20th century creation mm-hmm. um, to create, and, and Aaron explains this, to cre- the idea of nationalism in that European model is to create a national identity out of disparate groups, right? That, that initially have nothing in, in common um, or would see themselves as very distinct and he just basically claims that this this same process has never happened to America domestically mm-hmm. because of the thing we we plugged earlier with the um, you know he brings up manifest destiny and westward ex- westward expansion and says that's why you you know it's just part of our history we've we've developed as a nation differently um, so he's not denying that America is a nation he just thinks this nationalist label doesn't fit. Um, and if anything, a better, a more fitting label for America would be a, an empire on the domestic front. So con- contrasted with Dan's treatment, don't know if Dan would agree or disagree at this point. It's not his, his focus in his article. Sure. Um, but Aaron is bas- basically suggests that we should think more of ourselves as a domestic empire than as a, as a nation because we've never had this nationalist nationalization process that other European nations went through in the 19th century. And there's some, you know, historical precedent for this. I mean, if you look at Federalist One, mm-hmm. uh, the very first entry from Hamilton, um, he's talking about, you know, of course, the new constitution and what the federal government's going to look like. And he says, this is, you know, super important. The It, it speaks for itself why this is so important to talk about um, how the union is going to work. And he says, the safety and welfare of the parts of which it is composed, comma, the fate of an empire in many respects, the most interesting in the world. Um, And he calls America an empire again a couple paragraphs later. And this is when you only have 13 colonies, right? So, (laughs) or at that point, states. I think think we have to say, um, I think we have to say that, you know, the founders were, uh, you know, of, uh, they used a lot of different words to describe what they were founding. Yes. You know, if you if you turn over from Federalist One to Federalist Two, there's an extended argument about how the people of America are one nation, um, yes. and then you know I th- I think and and Aaron's sympathetic to that view and sort of some follow up dialogue with Neil Shenfee on Twitter following his article coming out. Aaron 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 viewed their uh, he viewed America as being one nation from its founding. So so he did mm-hmm. think it's proper to speak of America as a nation. Um, those 13 colonies being subparts, but comprising one nation mm-hmm. overall. And so I think, I think in Aaron's conception, the imperial aspect is the expansionary. It's really the expansionary mm-hmm. function. It's not mm-hmm. so much to say that, you know, America and the 13 colonies at its founding were a multi-ethnic, multilinguistic empire in that sense, but rather he finds the expansionary nation uh, nature mm-hmm. of our of our project to be more. It's just more open ended, right? And and as mm-hmm. the frontier is filled out, of course, the American Empire um, makes room for 
um, you know, for, for people who aren't Anglo Protestants uh, to kind of join in that project. So, you know, you get the German Lutherans in the Midwest and the Scandinavians and whatnot. Um, and, and then various other groups. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the, um, so, so I, th- I think that's his basic argument. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, th- I think, you know, one, the, the interesting critique that, that immediately comes to mind for me, well, let's just, let's just park there for a second. So framing mm-hmm. the debate, I think, I think the terms of the disagreement are essentially around, it's partly kind of around branding. I mean, Aaron's, Aaron's sort of arguing that he understands what Yoram Hazoni means when Yoram Hazoni says nationalism, right? Like, let's be totally clear. Mm-hmm. Aaron understands what Stephen Wolf means when he says Christian nationalism. And, mm-hmm. and Aaron's not really disagreeing substantively with a lot of their claims. It's, mm-hmm. it's a branding critique in the sense that he thinks capital N nationalism is sort of, uh, it, it evokes, it's a term that evokes 19th century European political phenomena that just mm-hmm. have never really been present in America. Right. And right. so, so I think that for me, at least the, the initial, um, feedback that comes to mind is that we had, um, you know, we had in America, something of a nationalization process in the character of Abraham Lincoln. And mm-hmm. we, um, you know, I mean, this is sort of a trite observation, right. But before the, before the civil war, people often spoke of, uh, you know, the United States using we, you know, like it, it, the, the United States were, um, you know, we spoke of ourselves as, as plural things, whereas the, we would say the United States are, um, you know, you, you know, we, 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 um, we viewed ourselves as sort of a, uh, a collective of various states. And then, and then now coming out of the civil war, we, we really viewed, um, we viewed it as sort of one united political body. So there, there were subtle changes in language, of course. Um, but, you know, of course, I mean, the 14th Amendment and, and what that did to our constitutional structure, ultimately resulting in the federal government sort of superseding uh, state rule in many cases, um, you know, and then, and then Lincoln's own rhetoric. Um, so yeah, well, I, guess, I, think, no, I think this is a, I think this is a really good, good point on in terms of have we had it's also the 19th century have we had a nationalization process and this is exactly almost a question i was going to tee up for you on the on this front so you you do so maybe not from Aaron. this is where i'd push back on aaron so from his perspective that hasn't necessarily happened at least not self-consciously we never went through the same thing that some other european nations did um, but for various reasons. And in, in a sense, that's, to, that's totally right. I get where he's coming from. In another sense, if you have the perspective of Americans going into the 19th century, rather than our, our perspective now, the differences between them state to state were large on, from their perspective for various reasons. So language may be shared generally, but there's certainly regional dialectical you know, differences. Um, and then there's just a customary and historical difference between them. And this is why, you know, Gordon Wood will point out that until Lincoln, and this goes to your point, until Lincoln, people would talk about the founders of the, of the country being the guy who basically started their colony. So William Penn is a founder. John Winthrop is a founder, right? That's pre-Lincoln. Yeah. Because those people are very attached to their local and, 
and colonial traditions prior to incorporation. They have a lot more autonomy domestically, um, right? And so that, that makes it, then Lincoln is the one who introduces the national founders, which can't be as easily claimed by any one state or, or group or anything like that. So it is that sort of process, at least in the, we might say the hearts and minds of the people. And then you have structural rearrangement that reflects that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and, so and, and this is and the, like the timing is kind of crucial. I mean, I, I don't know if we call it nationalism, but, you know, Lincoln is operating pretty much contemporaneously with Garibaldi in Italy, with mm -hmm. the nationalization efforts in France and with um, nationalization efforts in Germany as well. And to varying degrees, he's corresponding with people that are part of those national nationalizing projects. Mm -hmm. Um even on the cultural front, I, you know, I think you can see, um, I think a, a bit in Reconstruction, you can see this uh, project to, um, you know, whether good or bad, I mean, I'm just, just evaluating it descriptively in Reconstruction, it's this project of sort of stripping the South of, you know, that what the attempt is to sort of strip the South of its uh, political self-determination um, and kind of root out, you know, culturally recondition the South to be sort of subject to the Union, um, which looks in some ways a lot like the nationalization projects of, of you know, some of what happened in Europe. Right. And you, and you can also bring up, so I've, I've just recently read, it's an old book, but um, Ray Allen Billington's book, The Protestant Crusade, which mm -hmm. is all about um, sort of what we'd call nativism in the 19th century. So the periods 1800, 1860, you know, right up to the Civil War. And so there's also that aspect of, of the consolidation of the national identity. It can be tracked along with mass immigration. Yep. So as Eastern Europeans, non-Protestants especially, are coming in, you see a move away from the more local identities to the national identity in public rhetoric and these things because an exterior threat is forcing you to do so, right? And that's natural. That seems like a totally natural thing. So you start seeing the phrases, uh, the, the book just quotes lots of uh, newspapers and things. You start seeing local newspapers that previously would have talked about um, you know, in the founding period, you would have had pseudonyms that, that deal with local identities, Massachusetts and things like this. And then by the mid 19th century, you're seeing those same things. Um, those same papers will just be talking about Native Americans, right, as opposed to as opposed mm -hmm. to aliens or foreigners. So that as well, you know, contributes because of unregulated immigration, largely and massive growth exponentially. The local cultures and customs are, can't really sustain themselves because the process of, of assimilation is so quick and it inevitably creates a reaction which forces consolidation if you're going to have real um, effective action, uh, reaction. And so that requires um, to erode disti denominational distinctions for Protestants and to also erode uh, you know, local distinctions so that you can sort of band together to, to confront the, uh, the problem. So that, that as well also, also changed things. And a lot of that immigration was driven by some of the nationalization projects going on in the 19th century even then. Yeah. And th now this brings up an interesting dilemma, I think, for the Christian nationalist, which is um, uh, if, if the Christian nationalist has paleocon sympathies, 
Um, you know, then then what do they make of, uh, you know, if is is an American nationalism uh, sort of necessarily uh, linked to Lincoln, the 14th Amendment and, you know, and the things that the consequences that followed from that? And I think that's a, that that's a an interesting question. Probably a lot more needs to be said about that. Um, but, uh, you know, what does it mean to have a nationalism that? Uh, res- that respects a very vigorous state-level sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that—that's something I've tried not not really self-consciously engaging with the paleocons or, um, you know, the, this Lincoln question we might say, but just have made the general point repeatedly that if you're going to do American Christian nationalism, at bare minimum, you have to have to respect the original Federalist polity. I just mm-hmm. think that's a baseline issue, and it doesn't make much sense to try to try to override that. In fact, if you're wanting to be true to the American tradition, you actually want to wind back some incursions upon that structure, yeah. and you want it to function properly again. And that's like my my threshold kind of issue on that front. But I do think, like you're saying, there, there's much more discussion that needs to be had about what we might say the cultural or or characteristics of what the nationalism is going to be. Uh, what, what are you going to pull from? Is it going to be the, the, you know, how granular are you going to get, I guess would be the question or how abstract. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, we have to, I mean, these are like very virtuous debates to have because we have to put all of this in the background uh, the, with the backdrop of we want to assert national sovereignty over and against international, uh, you know, supposed consent-based international orders. So, you know, we don't, we don't want domestic uh, decisions in America being driven by the World Economic Forum or the UN or these sorts of these sorts of internationalist bodies, um, and we don't want our political leaders making decisions that are driven primarily by the interests of, you know, some sort of international order rather than the interests of um, the American people. And yeah. so, so, you know, at that very high level of generality, I, I would just say that I, I think the jury's out on, you know, the, the uh, cost benefit analysis of using nationalism as the rallying banner. Maybe there's some other word out there. I don't know. I haven't heard it and no other word has caught. Um, so, you know, if I would just say that it's, it's possible to, to take terms and, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, emphasize certain aspects or potential meanings that those terms have in a way that's different than their historical connotations and sort of build that into a movement. And nationalism is, is a very evocative, um, you know, uh, title that really, I mean, it really, do, it does communicate logically, I think, what its, its uh, supporters intend it to communicate, especially when it's used in this discourse about globalism in contrast to nationalism. So, right. you know, for, for, right. for all of those reasons, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I agree. I think that's proper too, even for our, you know, the constitutional structure that you and I want to see reinvigorated and flourish because of course the, um, you know, it is a proper national action as opposed to a state action um, to deal with foreign policy and trade and external threats. And that's a lot of what's driving this conversation Yeah, um, is protection of, the, the national borders, protection of international economic interests, and um, resisting the, the reverse, right, that our 
international economic interests have driven us to the point of where we let external bodies dictate internal policy, which is a, which is an incursion upon the states. Um, so the, the, it fits perfectly in that regard because that is a lot of the, um, before you get into the cultural arguments and the, the Christian side, that is a lot of what's driven regular people mm-hmm. to sort of latch onto this label. And I think therefore it's, it's appropriate. And also for the reasons you just, you just said, um, you know, and, and I think the, you know, that we can, I, I love the theoretical debates, but we can have a tendency to over theorize this um, okay. rather than look at it very practically and say, well, the label is galvanizing. People are using it. And then you have this is not a knock on Aaron because I do the same thing. But then you have Aaron saying, well, its connotations are really 19th century European movements. And I just don't know anyone on the street that's that's thinking through it that way. Yeah, it, it bring this back full circle back to back to our discussion around Dan's article. I think I think the the cash out really is this. Um, we have we we said when we discussed Dan's article that empires can be good things, but they can also hollow out national identity. And I think the very precise reason why that happens is the empire starts to develop its own set of interests and act in a self interested way to perpetuate itself in a way that's different than perpetuating or prioritizing the interests of the nation that birthed the empire. And so, you know, when, when it comes to these nationalism debates, I mean, we're often talking about America asserting its sovereignty over and against international bodies that America itself was instrumental in creating. So, you know, it, these, many of these bodies are tools of the American empire that now, um, you know, perpetuate the interests of the American empire rather than the American nation. Yeah. And so, you know, this, um, you know, in this respect, the nationalism discourse, I think is, can be salutary in reasserting the goodness of American leaders, prioritizing the interest of the American nation first. And to the extent we have an empire, the activities of that empire should be uh, their their primary goal should be the interests of the American nation, uh, and then and then other interests should be subordinated to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good good place to end. Um, yeah, I think I think that's that should be the takeaway. And, and both these articles were great, and both of these, uh, you know, Dan and obviously Aaron writes for us as, as well. It just shows, you know. Uh, in many ways, leading the discourse on this point, uh, like I said, into a sort of new stage um, in the Christian nationalist mm-hmm. debate that, that I welcome. And I hope to see um, lots of other people engage with their their arguments. So um, it's exciting stuff. Absolutely. No, and they, they, they're, they're both very good. And I would say they're the, both the kind of right explorations of nation versus empire and all the rest. This is the tone at which we want to strike, not moral panic, not pearl clutching, but clear-headed rational arguments about the the framework of nationalism as opposed to other potential frameworks yes very good time in uh, i think we can call this one a wrap yep all right take care everyone until next time god bless you can find american reformer on the internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at amreformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation 
through our secure online donation portal at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org.